0: Welcome, everyone. Can I ask you to take your seats. This is an inclusive church, and so the VIP seating down here is open to all of you. So we'd appreciate your moving up. That's the most respect I've ever had. Thank you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Steve Wheeler. I'm one of the members of the church here, and also an elder. And I have the privilege of uh, conducting the interview of. Frank Switzer, under Frankly Speaking. Uh, Just a couple of ground rules. Um, Frank and I are a little worried that some of you may be here under false pretenses. So how many of you came here expecting to get the Pastor Frank bobblehead that was going to be given to the first ten people who are authentically reformed evangelicals? Uh, I'm sorry, it's, it's not available. Uh, we got the early uh, model and it was not sufficiently lifelike. So, um, But we know who you are and so once they get fixed uh, they'll be back here. So a, a couple of ground rules. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, no heckling, at least uh, the interviewer. Um, <laughs> There's no such thing as a bad answer, just ones that aren't quite as good as they should be. So uh, just be respectful. Um, we will do our best to stay on time. Uh, as.
1: Oh, uh, she just walked in. Can we get the third chair up here? Jackie just walked in, so.
0: Yes, and, and that would be relevant. Why?
1: I thought we were going to have her up here. Oh, too. we just okay. never told her. Yes, okay. okay. <laughs> Kidding. No. <laughs>
0: So, so if, if you will bow your heads, let me at least open us in a prayer before it uh, all starts to degenerate. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you very much for your presence here today and, and for the great privilege of being in your church and learning more about a, a man you have gifted uh, so greatly as a powerful communicator and as a compassionate shepherd for, for us. May this be an edifying time of fellowship and instruction and communion and actually entertainment as well that will glorify you. So in your son's name we pray, amen. amen. Uh, the other thing I'm a little concerned about is uh, there's been some suggestion that this is sort of going to be a Judge Judy show where I'm going to interrogate Frank and I, I don't know where that expectation or or fake news came from. I mean, it's fake news. It's sort of like the people that assume we never landed on the moon, too. Uh, it's fake. This is going to be a, uh, a very thoughtful, grace-filled discussion so that we can learn, to learn more about Frank. This is not going to be a Spanish Inquisition style. I told Frank he didn't need to bring his attorney. There will be no court record taken of this. He can't invoke the Fifth Amendment and the like. So this is designed not to be a harsh, probing Uh, examination of the nooks and crannies of Frank's darker side. Rather, this is entitled to, uh, expected to allow us to get to know Frank better, uh, a man who is beloved by us all, uh, so that we can learn more about him, we can understand him better, uh, we can be instructed by him, but more importantly, so we can learn how to better serve him and how to pray for him and support him as a congregation. Uh, So that's the purpose as it is in all backstories, And you'll remember we've been doing a series of these backstories uh, highlighting individual members of the church for the same general purpose, to get to know our uh, fellow uh, churchgoers to be in better communion with them, to gather together in unity as we're called to do. Frank's always thought that's a great idea. And so I am told he specifically wants me to take responsibility for suggesting that we should expose him in the same light that we've been doing others. Because if you remember the last... Because back- it
1: was your idea. <laughs> yes.
0: And the last backstory uh, for those of you who bothered to attend was for Ann and myself. So this is a little bit of uh, payback, payback as yeah. well. So we're really excited and I thought I would start by acknowledging the elephant in the room uh, because I know most discerning Christians that go to our church have always wondered about why Frank has such a strange affinity for things like the Chicago Blackhawks, the rock band Heart, the office TV show, and the movie Godfather. And it occurred to me, we should be worried about a pastor who is sort of preoccupied with brutal mobsters. And so the, the question for, first, Frank, is...
1: You should be worried. I'm yes. Yes. Sure.
0: The first, first question is, how did you come to that strange affinity for that and what are you doing about it?
1: For for all of those things or just for in particular? Well
0: I only took the top five.
1: Okay, well um, I've always loved movies and I love storytelling and uh, I even read books about movies and study movies. I study them rhetorically. I, I uh, My master's degree is in rhetorical analysis of pop culture uh, artifacts from ASU and so I just love studying movies and other pop culture artifacts, storytelling, and I believe that *The Godfather* one and two are the two best movies that have ever been made. And so, I also love true crime, and *The Godfather*. Mario Puzo wrote the novel, which the novel is fantastic too. I've read it a couple of times. Um, Ira Jones actually bought me a copy at a, at a um, garage sale recently, and so I read through it again, and it was awesome. I appreciate that, Ira. See, people know me. That's, that's good. Um, and and um, uh, Vito Corleone's life was roughly based on um, back uh, Joe Bonanno in New York, the head of the five Mafia families, um, back when Joseph Kennedy was, was a big deal back then. And, and uh, so there are correlations there. But I also love true crime. I read a lot of true crime as well. I've read Helter Skelter four times, not because I'm planning to become a serial killer, <laughs> but because it, the, the psychology of it is just fascinating. listening to me, including, including of the Mafia, so that's, that's why the Mafia. Heart, I just started listening to them in the late 70s, fell in love with their music. Their music moves me like no other rock and roll music moves me, and certainly like no country music moves me. I don't think country music has ever moved me, but, um, <laughs> but it just moves me in a way that um, I've never been moved by music before. Uh, they're v- somewhat similar to Led Zeppelin. They pattern a lot of their music after... Led Zeppelin, probably the greatest band ever, and, uh, um, and, and I, uh, w- uh, a week from last night, we get to go out to Ak Chin and see them uh, again. They're in town. Uh, Joan Jett is opening for them. I'm a sinner, I know, but um, uh, it'll be a great concert, and it'll be the 32nd time that I've seen them uh, live. Yeah, isn't that sad? Um, the Chicago Blackhawks, I lived in Chicago for five years in the early 80s, and I grew up playing hockey over at um, Tower Plaza. And uh, so I've always loved hockey. I've always loved the Phoenix Roadrunners. Um, hockey's always been my favorite sport. Um, and so the Blackhawks just became my team because I lived there. And, um, and they're still my favorite team. Even when they stink like they do now, they're still my favorite team. Uh, we've already, Jackie and I already have our tickets for the two times they're in town this coming season. So excited about that. Thank you for your tithes and offerings. And... Um, <laughs> The office is just really good and gives you good one-liners for sermons. And what are, what, what's the another one? That's more than I more needed than to hear. Yeah.
0: So, so yeah, to better I'm understand the, uh, the, the behavioral origins of, of this, uh, do a little flyover quickly on your sort of chronological background, where you grew up, okay, that sort of thing.
1: Uh, I was born and raised here in Phoenix. I was born at Good Samaritan downtown when it was a one-building hospital. It's now Banner University. It was a one-building hospital at the time. In 1959, uh, the population of Phoenix at that time was about 350,000 people. I went to North Phoenix High School. It was still called North Phoenix High School in the mid-70s when it was built in 1933. uh, At Thomas Road and 12th Street, it was in North Phoenix, if you can imagine that. We're two miles north of that, and we're, we're not anywhere near the northern part of Phoenix. Finally, in the 90s, they decided they weren't North Phoenix High School anymore, so they just changed the name to North High School. Um, then I, I eh, went to NAU for a year. Um,
0: Is that for the school or your participation? That no, you for my,
1: my ability to be a student. I was not a very good student there. It wasn't NAU's fault, but I blamed them, um, <laughs> which I think most students would do. And uh, came back here and got a job selling shoes at Christown Mall. And I still call it Christown. I will never call it Spectrum. Uh, True Phoenicians call it Christown, not Spectrum. Um, I think it's awful that they rename them all to rhyme with a part of the body that's not that pleasant. So, um, are we recording? Yeah, okay. Uh, Anyway, so Christown, I worked there for two years uh, for Baker Shoes and uh, 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 did really well. I was on commission, loved it, got promoted. The company moved me to Abilene, Texas to open a store there. Uh, in the Mall of Abilene, which was brand new, had a great time there, and uh, a little less than a year later, they moved me to Chicago, where I ran three stores in Chicago in succession, the last one being on State Street. What an experience, I'm telling you, what an experience. And, uh, and then when I was 24, 25 years old, they promoted me from Chicago to Houston to be a regional manager, where I uh, was in charge of 19 stores in southeastern Texas, including the border stores in McAllen, Harlingen, and Brownsville, Corpus Christi, Victoria, Lake Jackson, all of those uh, down there. Didn't much care for Houston, um, but eventually decided to come back to Phoenix, got a job, some of you will remember this, got a job with uh, uh, working for Lee Cohen at Big Four Restaurant Company. Um, Didn't work directly for him, um, but I was interviewed by him, Uh, him and Barry Goldstein and a couple of the others, and uh, worked for Big Four restaurants for about a year, and then went to work for the family business and spent 10 years there uh, in the retail business. Um, again, back in the retail business uh, before the company was sold in 1994. I had had a change in my world view though in 1987. Jackie and I met at work and um, we eventually, uh, we were friends for two years, eventually fell in love um, and uh, she God God used her to lead me to Christ and God saved me at North Phoenix Baptist Church in 1987. So. When the company was sold in 1994 um, I had a whole different outlook on life and education and, and, uh, and so I decided to go back to school and uh, went to Grand Canyon University before it, it was what it is today, so we're 1500 liberal arts students and uh, got my degree in religious studies with a minor in communication and speech, I was on the speech team there. I also auditioned for three different plays at Ethington Theatre while I was there. Uh, because I discovered something. When you're in your mid-30s and you're at a small liberal arts college, you don't have to have talent to get selected for plays, because they always need old people in the plays. (laughs) So twice I played somebody's father, and then in the third play, uh, the lady's not for burning, I I played a a priest, a father. So a lot of fun doing that. And then I went to Fuller Theological Seminary, got my Master's of Divinity uh, from Pasadena, the main campus in Pasadena. Lots and lots of backstories there. And then Uh, We were planning on going to um, St. Paul to go to Bethel Seminary, and I was going to work on a PhD in Old Testament theology. Might be one of the reasons why I love the Old Testament so much, and I want to teach it a lot. Um, But uh, a lot of stories, God intervened, and I ended up applying to and getting into Arizona State University's Hugh Downs School of Human Communication to work on a Master of Arts in Communication Theory with an emphasis in, in rhetorical analysis. And so I got that degree. That's the degree that qualifies me to teach at Paradise Valley Community College, Grand Canyon University, and I also spent 18 years at the Fuller Extension, the Fuller Seminary Extension here, uh, teaching communication for them. Um, And now, of course, they're closing all their extensions. It wasn't my fault, Um, but they are closing their extensions, so that ended my teaching association with Fuller. And then um, my first pastoral job was as an intern at Paradise Valley Community Church, which uh, eventually turned into... Um, taking over for, uh, as a lead pastor after the founding pastor retired, Bill Nothelfer, a man that I still hold in tremendously high regard. Some of you have heard me mention him during sermons and during um, consecration ceremonies up here. Um, and then I was there for 12 years, and then um, because of my relationship with Tom Schrader um, and the way uh, Redemption Church got put together and with what happened with Justin Anderson being called to San Francisco, uh, Arcadia eventually opened up and, and uh, Tom and Tyler asked if I'd be interested in coming here. Tyler spent three months vetting me. I'd never been vetted like that. Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor, I'd never been vetted like that in my life. It was like a part-time job for three months. We met for probably 15 hours a week for three months and uh, then they asked if I would come and lead Arcadia and that was uh, almost eight years ago. So, so
0: let's not gloss over your early years uh, quite so quickly. What were you like in high school? One of the questions I love to ask people. Uh, but by the way, we already have affidavits from people who told us what you were really like. We, it's, it's more about your self-assessment. Okay.
1: Let, me, let me answer that question by asking you a question. What were you like in high school? Admirable. <laughs> okay. Well, this is the other side of that coin. I, I don't know necessarily how I was perceived uh, in high school. Uh, but I did not have a very good perception of myself. I didn't care much for high school. Um, I was an athlete and I, and, and I did fine. Uh, I even studied and got pretty good grades. Um, but I just, there was something about it that I didn't necessarily care for. I've never gone to a, I've never gone to a, a reunion. I, I stay in touch with three guys um, from high school, still to this day, and that's about it. Um, but I also feel like I, I think the biggest problem is I know that I underachieved by a great deal in high school, both uh, uh, scholastically and athletically, I underachieved. I, I could have done so much better. I have so many regrets about high
0: school. W- would your friends uh, be surprised at your current occupation?
1: Oh, my goodness, yes. I think I mentioned this in a sermon once. Um, I've had people that went to North when I was there, Uh, wander in here, find out that I'm the pastor, and they never come back. Um, None of the other high school graduates from any of the other high schools in Phoenix do that. Um, They're much more um, accepting of of who I am now as opposed to who I was. So maybe that's an... uh, Here you go. I have a story to tell. Um, This is Thursday night. It's not not Sunday, okay? So we're going to take a little leeway here. There's freedom in Christ. Yes, there is freedom (laughs) Maybe not after this story. But at any rate, um, there was a baseball coach at uh, North named Ron Scott who was there for about four years. It was his first... He was a government teacher, and he he, w- he was called to be the baseball coach there. He was a young guy when, when I was there, and um, he, he was really a terrific guy, and um, uh, it was his first job as a teacher and a coach. After four years at North, uh, he went to Alhambra, and he was there for probably... 40 years at Alhambra as the baseball coach and is well known throughout the state as a wonderful baseball coach, a wonderful teacher, and and an umpire. Um, I have one of the friends that I stay in touch with, Joe Wilson, played baseball. I did not play baseball, um, but I was good friends with uh, several of the baseball players. And uh, Joe Wilson, every year, he... uh, uh, organizes all the guys from the class of 1977 that played baseball in 1977, and they have a lunch with Coach Scott. Uh, It's really a cool tradition. Uh, Two years ago, they decided to invite me to the lunch as well. I I don't know why, but I got to go. It was pretty cool. So it was me and then a bunch of baseball players, and they invited the baseball players from the class of 1978. So the guys that were juniors when we were seniors, they also invited them. And uh, in walked, um, I, I, his name is Johnny, and I, I, I can't remember if his last name is um, Velasquez or Venezuela, but anyway, Johnny. And this guy, big personality. He's, um, he's been a firefighter all over uh, Maricopa County. I think he's in Chandler now. F- loud, funny, uh, enjoys um, having a few beers. I mean, anyway, so we're at lunch downtown and he walks in and he just takes over the room and takes over the conversation and he he identified he like he I hadn't seen him since I graduated he identified me He identified Larry Beacom who was sitting right next to me that di- identified Scott Miller who was se- sitting right next to Larry um, made some derogatory remarks about our um, physical nature and and then sat down so he's very colorful and and has just a great command of some of the worst language you've ever want to hear in your life. So, <laughs> so, he spent much of the lunch telling jokes and telling stories that were very colorful and very funny at times, admittedly. Um, so, but just F-bombs everywhere. And um, so, towards the end of the lunch, he was sitting right next to me right here. Towards the end of the lunch, he said, So, Frank, um, what are you doing? <laughs> what, what do you do now for a living? And I said... Johnny, you would not believe it if I told you. Because he's been just dropping all these F-bombs, you know, right next to me. And that was the least of some of the stuff he was talking about. And, uh, and um, I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And, and he said, what are you, a neurosurgeon? And I said, no, not quite. And he said, well, what do, you, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor of a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving church. And he said... Me,
0: <laughs> that captures so much. <laughs> Please.
1: Please send the emails to Steve. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I, just, I love that. St- I'm sorry, I love that story. I think. <laughs> So, so
0: still focusing back on the, on the personal life, you have two wonderful daughters. So yes. uh, tell us, how did, what was your philosophy of parenting? Were, were you free-range parents? Were you helicopter parents?
1: Uh, we were, if you would have a spectrum of free-range and helicopter, uh, we were outside of that spectrum. And I will tell you that... Um, on which side? Just outside. Okay. You know how God is outside of time and space? We were sort of like that. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, first of all, I have to give a lot of credit to Jackie. She's a tremendous mother, just incredible. Um, but we spent a lot of time talking about our philosophy of parenting before we had kids. And um, a great deal of our philosophy of parenting was given, was passed down to us from Tom Schrader because we really admired him and we admired his two daughters, uh, Sarah and Haley, Um, very, very much. We admired Susan, his first wife, who died from cancer um, about 14 years ago. Ten years ago, I don't know. Ten years ago, maybe. Anyway, um, so a lot of it is due to him. But we also, before we started having children, we would actually observe um, families that had children that we enjoyed spending time with. Little kids that we actually enjoyed being around. And so we would spend time with those parents and start to ask them about their, what they did as parents. And that really helped us a lot. And I can boil it down to three things that we um, did. And some of you have heard this from me many times. Number one, we, we didn't have rules. We had conversations, um, which takes a lot more work but has a gr- much greater return on investment than having rules. We had conversations. We believed that everything that our kids did had a context And rules don't take into account context. Conversations take into account context. Um, Second of all, we wanted to raise our children to be independent of us, but dependent upon God. So we were always, it's it's not that we didn't want to be in relationship with them. and It's not that we didn't want them to know that they could come to us. But we wanted them to know that we were dependent upon God. And ultimately that's where they were going to be headed as well. And then um, third, we wanted to raise them to be good decision makers. And so we started very early with them, with the simplest of decisions, but helping them to understand what it would be like to make decisions and then have to live with those consequences from little kids so that they would have the ability to think critically and make good decisions. when When they got into those years when you need to be able to think critically and make good decisions, like whether or not you're going to get into a car with a 16-year-old who just got her license and thinks she knows how to drive. Which Shelby did not because she got nervous about it because she made good decisions and that car ended up in a T-bone accident. Very devastating to the children, that were the 16-year-olds who were in that car. And specifically, she didn't get in that car because she thought through how foolish it might be to get into a car with a driver like that. Um, there's more to that story, obviously, but that's just one example. So... Uh, conversations, no rules, independent of us, but dependent upon God and to be good decision makers.
0: So I want to do my best to maintain uh, Jackie's privacy, but what can you tell us about how the two of you work on maintaining a strong marriage?
1: Uh, I'm not sure how to answer that because um, at least from my perspective, I've been blessed with the fact that uh, when I have spare time, the first thing I think about what to do with it is that I want to be with Jackie. And I know that not all marriages are like that. I'm not sure why that is. If, I'm just, if I just hit the jackpot or what, or if it's because of who Christ is in me, I'd like to think that's what it is. But um, I think that one of the reasons we have a good marriage is because we really truly delight in each other. We want to be with each other. And we love doing things together. We have our things that are separate. She does not like distance running. And I've been a distance runner um, for 45 years of my life. More than that, 48 years of my life. Um, uh, I cannot play volleyball. I love watching it. But I can't play it. They pay me money to stay off the yeah, court. Explain why that's relevant. Would, Not everybody well, may know. Jackie is an exceptionally good volleyball player and a wonderful volleyball coach, high school coach, club volleyball coach. And at the age of 52, she's still playing highly competitive co-ed and women's volleyball on travel teams. She goes out of town all the time to play on these, in these tournaments all, all over uh, the United States. She's an incredible volleyball player. Well, she does that, and I run. Um, but other than that, we both love movies. We both love shopping. I know that's weird. I do like shopping. I think it's because I have a retail background. By the way, Jackie was in the retail business with me too. And this is 30 years later. We we will still walk through Macy's and we'll straighten hangers and, and garments on hangers. It's just it's in our blood. You know, it's just the way it is. Um, anyway, so um, so we love doing everything else together. We love being around our children. Um, and we always want them to feel safe around us, and we feel like we still have a good relationship with them. We love traveling together. We love the same areas of the United States together. Um, she would love to go to Europe. I'm like, yeah, whatever, maybe. Um, she would love to go on a cruise. I'm like, I'm not going on a cruise. Um, so we have our differences, but, um, but, I, but, but I think we just delight in each other. We, God has allowed us to delight in each other. That's how we stay strong. Batteries dead. I bet you the batteries are dead. Stephanie, can you get? Is this, is this on? I th- I think we got a battery problem. See that? Re- okay. So we need batteries. So go ahead and ask me, and I'll repeat the question. Can don't not you can't use that mic. Sorry. can't use it because it won't record. I know you're the elder. I probably shouldn't have done that, but that's all right. Okay. Maybe these batteries from last night will be okay. We need batteries. The green, the green mic wasn't working either. All right. Ask me the question, okay. and I'll repeat it.
0: So I want to circle back a little bit on your professional career. Okay. Okay. So
1: Um, First of all, I don't recommend it. Even though I did it, I don't recommend it. Um, There are dynamics in family businesses that are really hard and uh, long-lasting and very personal uh, that can be very, very difficult. So, um, and it works in some cases, but most cases it doesn't work that well. And we had our challenges as well. Um, but just being in the business world, being in the marketplace before becoming a pastor, I think was really beneficial to becoming a pastor.
0: Yeah, so stay on that, on that particular okay. point. So how did your marketplace experience, whether it was in the family business or outside, it, how did it shape how you have become a pastor? Uh,
1: there, there's a number of things. First of all, <clears throat> um, most pastors cannot read financial statements. They don't teach that at seminary, and most pastors never have that kind of experience. And so uh, most pastors really don't have a firm grip or understanding on how to manage money, look at economic trends, and those kinds of things. And I think that has served me well in, in 20 years as a lead pastor. It served me very, very well. My first uh, elders meeting at Paradise Valley Community Church, uh, when they passed out the monthly P&L for that past month, they didn't have a copy for me. And, and I say, where's my copy? And they said, oh, uh, Bill usually left during this part of the meeting because he wasn't interested in that apparently. Um, and so I said, no, I'd really like to see the p and And I was always very involved. I had re- uh, regular meetings with our treasurer who was a CPA, great guy named Steve Hampton. And um, we, would, we would actually discuss the p and before we actually presented it to the board to make sure because I could actually catch things that were maybe wrong um, because I knew I was trained in that so that that's really helpful and it helps It help I think it helps lead a church in a in a way that honors God through good stewardship but also the other part of that is and I think this is the most important part um, and I've talked about this before there's this um, uh, a lot of people consider that there is think that there is a, a a secular sacred divide between the church and the marketplace that people who work in the church are working in the sac- sa- sacred space of, of creation and everybody in the marketplace is in the secular space of creation. But God has created it all and it's all good. And through Christ, we've become ministers of the gospel no matter where we are. And and so there is no differentiation between the sacred and the secular. And, and so um, this idea that there's... Yes, in the sense that uh, I get paid, I'm a professional minister. That's true. But really, our job, according to Paul in the New Testament, is to equip the saints to, to, to be able to proclaim the gospel and to serve others. And that's what you do in the marketplace. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was wonderful about this. He, he, talked, he had this little illustration about how um, if you're somebody who's a farmer and you're just producing milk, you're doing God's work producing milk for other people who consume that milk. And so if you're a barista, if you're a food server, if you're a graphic design artist, if you're, God forbid, an attorney, if you're, um, <laughs> if you're a doctor, if you're, if you're a CPA, uh, whatever it is that you, you are doing, you are serving God's creation. If you would look at your, your vocation that way. I'm not talking about going to work and passing out the, the four spiritual law tracts. Don't do that. I'm talking about serving people in a gospel-centered way. Um, I think that's a great way to make a difference.
0: So you indicated you still teach, uh, after all these years, at Paradise Valley Community College. Yes. Mm-hmm. Why do you do that?
1: Um, I primarily this and, is the reason. And, re- what, there, do you, there and are, what do you teach? There are other reasons, but th- this is primarily the reason. I teach uh, communication theory and public speaking at Paradise Valley Community College. Um, this is the primary reason when I was at Fuller Seminary, I took my two philosophy classes from Richard Mao, who was the president of Fuller Seminary the only classes he took, taught was philosophy because he 's one of the premier Christian philosophers in the world. He's incredible. I highly recommend you read anything that he's uh, written and listen to him when he debates people. He, he routinely debates in a very nice and uh, uh, collegial way. Um, uh, uh, atheists and such, and, and it's very interesting to listen to him. But he taught these philosophy classes, and one of the things he said was, if you're going to be a minister, one of the things you have to do is you have to make sure that you're not you're not siloed, that you're not in your little bubble. You have to get out and be in the marketplace. Number one, so that you can be with your people. Don't just wait for everybody to come to church. And second of all, you have to purposely, purposefully pursue the next generation and the generation after that generation to know who they are, know what they're struggling with, know what they're dealing with, uh, befriend them, serve them, and be with them. So that's one of the reasons why I'm at Paradise Valley Community College teaching there, because um, every semester, spring and fall, as long as I get a contract, I get anywhere from 60 to 80 uh, 18 19 20 21 year old students that I get to do that with and, and I get to understand the next generation better uh, and it's interesting how uh, the first day of class a lot of them are a little bit leery of me um, but by the end of uh, by the end of the semester there's there's a level of confidence that they have that they can come with me come to me with stuff and and some some of them end up in our churches.
0: And aren't you recognized on campus as having one of the most popular classes as well and well attended?
1: I I, I don't know if that's true. I hear that, but I don't know if that's yeah. true. I've, I've always my classes have always made, but you know. So.
0: so I've asked you some personal questions and then some professional non-church questions. Let me turn over to the spiritual side for okay. for a moment with a with a few questions.
1: I'm just checking how much longer I have to be up here. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. This, <laughs> we've got
0: time. Okay. Uh, So some people would would describe being a pastor as one of the toughest, uh, most strenuous, uh, stressful jobs that that one can have. So I wanted to see if you give us a little bit of an inside baseball look at at how you go about doing your job. So, for example, of of all the tasks that you have just that come with pastoring, like preaching, like shepherding, like serving, um, counseling, discipling, Uh, How do you allocate your time among those? And and how do you leave time that aside for your family and and for your own personal health?
1: So I would say that um, my weekly schedule is about 50% uh, what I've planned and 50% of it just happens to me. Um, That's the life of anybody in in vocational ministry. And in fact, in some ministries, It's more like 20% is planned and 80% happens to you. Um, So that's one thing that you have to consider. Um, Let let me say this before I go on and talk about all of that. And if there's something specific you want me to get at, uh, uh, tell me. But uh, let me say this. Uh, Being a pastor is hard. There are things about being a pastor that most people have no idea about, never consider, don't understand, and you can't know about it until you actually do it. There's just no way that you can understand it until you actually do it. Having said that, though, um, being a lawyer is really, really hard. And there are things about being a lawyer that you have no idea what it's like until you actually are a lawyer. Um, being a food server is really, really hard, and you have no idea what it's like to actually be a food server and have to put up with rude customers who don't tip properly uh, until you've actually do-, do You see where I'm going with this? Um, I think there is a sense in pastoral ministry a little bit too strong by many pastors of sort of the poor me in my pastoral ministry attitude. Um, 53%, according to um, the most recent uh, studies, 53% of pastors, if you paid them the same money to do something else, they would do it like that. Okay, I'm part of the 47%. Um, I don't know that there's any amount of money you could pay me to do something else, because I believe this, that I'm called to do this, even though it's really hard sometimes. Um, but it's a privilege to be called. And, and so when it's hard, it's hard, but, but I'll tell you, when it's good, it's, it's, it's extra special good, like nothing else that I could ever um, describe. So a couple of the things that maybe you don't quite understand, though, about pastoral ministry is uh, first of all, doing pastoral ministry is a lot like triage. Um, you have so many things and people coming at you at once that you actually have to try to triage it, and that doesn't make that makes some people unhappy from time to time because they're sure that no matter what their issue is, they should be first in line, no matter what. And and I have the opportunity to be able to look at what at everything, and I'm like, actually, no, you're like fifteenth right now because. These other things are way more serious than what you've got going on. So that can be difficult. That's fine. That's the way it is. That's part of the job. Um, sermon prep. I probably spend, uh, think about your job. Uh, if, if, let's say you work 40 hours a week. I know most of us don't, but let's say 40 hours a week. Think about your job. I spend 15 to 18 hours a week on sermon prep and sermon prep related items. That doesn't leave a whole lot of time for a lot of other stuff. And I'm in a lot of meetings, and I have a lot of appointments, and and because of the demographic of our church, which I think is the greatest blessing of this church, I do a lot of premarital, and I do a lot of weddings. That's been a lot of fun to be involved in that. But that takes a lot of time um, as well. And here's the third thing. Um, Most people do not understand what happens to a speaker's body physiologically when they speak three times in, in one day. And it's not just that you're up giving a, a, like your, sugar, your, your um, sugar stick speech that you give everywhere that you can whip out, you're, you're, you have to have something new every single week um, based on the material, the greatest material in the world, but still, you have to have something new every single week, and in that process, you're also burying your soul. So this, isn't, this is public speaking, but it's also a, a, an exquisitely different and challenging kind of public speaking. Most people have no idea what happens physiologically to your body when, when, when you do that. I am exhausted until about 3 or 4 o'clock on Monday afternoon. I mean, just wiped out. Um, and I know a lot of people will say this to me. All you're doing is standing up there and talking. Okay, you just have no idea what that is actually really like to, to, to have to do that. Um, lots and lots of pastors um, deal with headaches and and um, migraines because of that uh, I remember Tom Schrader at one point at East Valley Bible Church they had seven Sunday services that he preached in every one of them and I remember he called me one, uh, one day and he said hey let's have breakfast at the Good Egg at um, McQueen and Elliot on Monday morning and I walked in there Monday morning and he had his own little, the people at the Good Egg or Eggingtons whatever it was um, he had his spot that was his spot you know, back there, Tom Spott. And I, but I didn't know where he was in, in the room. And I looked around, and I looked right at him, and I thought he was a homeless person. He was so wiped out, so bedraggled, uh, so fatigued from doing that. And and yet he still wanted to meet with me. He still wanted to give me his time. Um, and I sat with him, and it was just it was amazing to just look at him and go, this is what happens to somebody who speaks seven times and you bear your soul. As a pastor, you're bearing your soul, and you're opening yourself up to a lot of people who think they know more than you do, and some of them do, um, but they wanna make sure that they express it um, as quickly as possible through any means possible. So those are some of the challenges that we put up with. So
0: staying on the inside baseball uh, Mm -hmm. uh, side of this for a moment, what doctrines, theologically, what doctrines of our faith are the hardest for you to teach or are the hardest for our congregation to understand and apply?
1: Well, Jackie would tell you, and I think I agree with this, I don't have any problems teaching anything. It's just that I know that there are certain things that we're going to teach that are, are not going to be well received. Or that are going to be received in such a way that, um, that no matter how well we teach it, people just aren't going to believe. Uh, they're not going to accept it. And so, um, the, doctrine of, of, uh, the doctrines of grace would be one of them. Election, predestination, all of that. And I, mean, I know that's really some hard stuff. Uh, we talked this last Sunday about one of them, the idea of retributive justice. People want to think of God as only uh, a God of, of restorative and redeeming justice, but he also is a God of retributive justice. What's interesting to me about that, of course, is that um, if left to us, w- w- the kind of justice most of us want to practice is actually retributive justice. We're not very good at restorative justice and yet yet we call God to only practice restorative and redemptive justice and are mad when he practices retributive justice. You better be careful with that because you might be next in line for that, okay? Sorry, a little of my Southern Baptist background coming out for you there. Um, uh, the The, uh, the any, anything relating to biblical sexuality is is a challenge anymore. Um, so here's one here's one story that I have for that. If I can I tell a story? Sure, <clears throat> sure. Here's one story that I have. That it has to do with the doctrines of grace or election or predestination. But today it can certainly be applied to anything that has to do with biblical sexuality as well. The same idea, the same the same frame of mind, the same approach. Years ago, when I first got here, it was the first year I was at Redemption Arcadia, and we uh, Sean Mortensen was teaching some membership classes, and I rem- this guy came up um, from the membership class. He left the class and came up. Remember we had a basement over there? I, I, those of you who have never been to our old property, I'm sorry, he, what do you mean he came up? We had a basement, and they were down in the basement. I was up on the first floor, and this guy left the class, came up to grab me, and he, and he said, I need to talk to you about this whole election business. And I said, Okay, great. Let's, let's, uh, let's sit down. Let me grab a Bible. And he goes, Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not interested in what the Bible has to say. I already know what the Bible has to say. I want to talk to you about what's fair. <laughs> and I said, Well, What you're telling me is that my authority in life is God's word. Your authority in life is essentially your opinion, right? He goes, well, yeah, I guess you could interpret it that way. Well, yes, that is exactly the way it should be interpreted, okay? So he said, yes, I guess you could interpret it that way. And I said, okay, so if my authority is the Bible and your authority is your opinion, we're never going to get anywhere in this conversation. So could we just go have a cookie together and be friends? And that was the end of the conversation. Because what are you going to do at that point? If if you're standing on God's word and the other person is standing on what they think and feel, you're not going to get anywhere, you know? And and frankly, I would rather somebody I I am so tired, boy. I'm you're you're I'm losing you. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> but I feel like I've still got them, okay? This side, this side. I I am so tired of being approached by people and saying, does the Bible really say that same-sex people can't get married? Does it really say that? Okay, that's not the question they're asking. They know that that's what the Bible really says. What they're saying is, can't we fudge on that I'm really uncomfortable, and it's unfair, and I have a brother, or I have a sister, or I have a friend. That's what they're saying. I'm not denying that that's hard. But to try to transform the Bible to say what your narrative is, is a problem. And I'm just not going to do it. And I know that might lead to some very unpleasant situations, but I'm not going to do it. And neither is Redemption Church, by the way. So... By by the way, I have a sister who's married to another woman. So I get it. I get it. Okay? And I love her. You know? She doesn't think I do because I disagree with her. Because her understanding of love is that I have to agree with her and champion her lifestyle. That's the only love that she will accept. That's not love. That's not a definition of love.
0: So the Bible tells us that the Apostle Paul had a thorn in his side. A thorn that is not well described and that he prays Uh, assiduously that that thorn be removed from his side so he can do his work more effectively. Do you have a thorn in your side?
1: Yes. Elders.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're in one of these dating shows and the question's (laughs) been rehearsed and the answer, and you're supposed to all chuckle at how clever that was.
1: Uh,
0: Frankly speaking, what's your answer?
1: Okay. Okay. I'd really like Jackie to say something about this if she thinks. Just keep me on keep me on the right path here, okay? I think my thorn in the side. um, I have two thorns. Um, One is that uh, Luke Simmons, who some of you know, Luke. He's the pastor of our Gateway congregation. One of the greatest guys I know. Um, He once said. Ministry can be a black hole. There's always something else to do. Uh, One of my thorns is that I am too easily sucked into that black hole. I have a Sabbath, but even on my Sabbath, I'm anxious and nervous about wanting to go and do more. And that's a problem because you need a Sabbath. Um, So that's one of my thorns. The other thorn that I have is probably uh, that I want to say yes too much because I'm worried about um, what people might think of me—is that too honest for you? No. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, so that's my other thorn. So
0: fl- flip the coin a bit. Uh,
1: no. Wait. Let me ask. is, Jack, wait, wait, is that? Okay? Would you agree with that? Is there anything else? Do I have any other thorns? Yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> ja- ja- that's Saint Jackie back there. Could you raise your hand so at least people know where you are? <laughs> Okay, so let, let's turn the, uh, to the other side of the coin. What, what area uh, would you like to see the congregation improve on?
1: Um,
0: How could we be a better congregation?
1: Uh, I think two areas, and one of them is uh, an area that everybody can, or everybody always says, well, I can improve on this, and every community says we can improve on this, and that would be prayer. And that's been something I've been personally working on way more in the last year than I ever have in my life. So prayer would be one of them. But I think uh, a bigger one would be um, recognizing the importance of of, uh, intentional gospel-centered relationships and community. Um, We have some wonderful RCs. Um, They're they're so good that I want to attend them all. You know, every time I go to an RC, I think, how could anybody not want to be here? It's just amazing to me. And I've not, I have not always felt that way about small groups or RCs. Um, but we have some great RCs, and I see the benefits of them, and I wish more people would figure out how they can engage in, in the RCs.
0: So you've been a pastor how many years now? Twenty. Twenty. How are you a different pastor now than you were in the beginning? Gray
1: um, Gray hair. Uh, I am way more secure in Christ than I was before. And I think I'm a little bit less arrogant. Okay. Would you like to have some input on that? Because you've known me for quite some time.
0: Not in this meeting, no. Okay. <laughs> so how about a more, a more macro assessment? How would you describe the state of the Reformed Evangelical church writ large in America today.
1: Wow. We could debate that for a long time because just, just your impression. Many different You're a well read guy. You're in contact um, with a lot of folks. I think I think the Reformed Church is the one that is is uh, has the best chance at uh, staying steadfast and standing firm as Paul talks about in Philippians. Um, and uh, I, I think we have the best scholarship uh, and it's also the only area of the American church that's actually showing any growth. Uh, and healthy things tend to grow. Uh, so I think, it's, I think it's okay, but it's also going to be, it, it's also, it's a, it, it, there's going to be tremendous assault. It's gonna, there's going to be tremendous spiritual warfare. There already is tremendous spiritual warfare. Uh, and so it's going to also be really, really hard. And it is really hard.
0: So worship music seems to be one of those areas where you see uh, a significant debate based on personal preference, mm, yeah. uh, and you see it even within our church. How would you describe Redemption Arcadia's worship music philosophy, if if that's a proper way of phrasing it?
1: Our our worship music philosophy is pretty simple. We we look at the uh, words in the songs, and that's what drives whether or not it's going to end up um, on here on Sunday. Uh, And not necessarily the style of the music. And we know that the style isn't for everybody, um, but it's the words. The words are the most important thing. As long as it's um, centered in the gospel and centered in who God is rather than centered in who we are and centered in what we want, um, uh, then the, the the song has a chance to make it into our worship set. Um, so that would be our basic philosophy. It's the theology of the music. If the theology of the music of the music doesn't isn't correct or line up with who we are as a church, then we're not going to do the song. So, what
0: do you say to the occasional uh, people that say, I, lo- "I love the preaching, I love the people, I don't like the music. We're going to another church."
1: Yeah, you can do that. I, I don't know what else to say because we're not going to. If here you go. <clears throat> Here's a little illustration from the fact that I was in the marketplace for so long, for almost 20 years as well. Um, When you buy a blouse from Nordstrom's, we're talking about generally women now buying a blouse from Nordstrom's, (laughs) and you get the blouse home and you don't like that blouse for whatever reason, it doesn't wear well, it doesn't fit as well as you, thought. whatever it is, you get to return that blouse. You have the right to return the blouse, And Nordstrom's going to take it back because the customer is always right. Correct. So uh, you you have this relationship with every uh, customer service oriented person in your life from your barista to the person you buy clothes from to the to um, the person you're buying your food from your restaurants or or the, the food that gets delivered to your house. Amazon. Everybody will take everything back. You are always right. Right. Right? Because you have this individual one-on-one relationship with the vendor. Okay. What happens now is people walk into the church and they want that same individual one-on-one relationship with their vendor of spiritual goods and services. So if I don't like the music, I have every right to go and tell the pastor to change the music. And people are shocked when we say we're not going to change our music. Because changing the music, when you return a blouse, it doesn't affect anybody else. When you change the music, it affects the entire community. How selfish and self-centered is that? Seriously, think about it. This is very convicting for some of you in this room right now. I know it is. But how selfish and self-centered is that? Okay, that you are, and by the way, if we change the music for you, what's to prevent us next week from, to change, from changing it for the next person, and then the next person, and then the next person, and then the next person? It's ridiculous.
0: And is that the area where you would get the most sort of questions, challenges, or complaints oh, about cer- the church?
1: Certainly. Yeah. Um, but you ask the question, and my answer is, yeah, you need to go to a different church, because there's churches that have music that's just wonderful for you. And you'll like the music. But you know they what? Play you may hard? not like the preaching, you may not like the small groups, you may not like the parking and the coffee may suck. <laughs> but you're a consumer, so you're gonna have to figure that out and deal with it.
0: Okay, the so church
1: is like a family, it's give and take. You you gotta put some skin in the game. You don't get to just take skin out of the game.
0: So you obviously get worked up about some of this stuff. <laughs> so so
1: I told you this would be dangerous. Yes. Yeah, so
0: so when you're stressed out, how do you uh, decompress? How do you chill out? Do you have hobbies? Do you collect stamps? Um,
1: mostly, Barbie mostly, dolls? mostly I go out to eat with you and Jim Moreland and yell at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, besides going out with you and Jim Moreland and yelling at you, um, I, you know, pastors need a safe space. I will tell you that there are some of the other lead pastors who actually um, feel like I'm their safe space, so they come and they vent to me when they just need somebody. You just want to go, you know what? <laughs> you know, because um, that happens sometimes. Um, I, it doesn't ever happen in any other business. So, <laughs> right, Carrie? <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, uh, so what do I do? I run. Uh, if if I was not able to run, that would be or or exercise. That's you a run, big part of it. Do
0: you it. run to something or away from
1: something? <laughs> I run away from something and then I run back, because eventually I have to get back. So I I run four days a week, I ride a stationary bike three days a week, I enjoy hiking, so a lot of it is exercise, and then, you know, I have my shows that I like to watch, that's part of it too, is I enjoy watching shows with Jackie, Jackie and I both love to watch shows, and uh, Jackie likes it especially, some of you know this, Jackie likes it especially because most of the time her feet end up in my lap and she gets a foot rub, so. Aww. But see, that's how I get to watch my shows instead of her shows.
0: <laughs> okay, so, so two, two wrap-up questions.
1: Are we really almost out of time already? Well, I am, yeah. We have 17 <laughs> minutes yes. to go.
0: You told me not to open it up to the crowd, so right? But okay. we have
1: 17. So stretch more the answers so, out to okay. these two questions. Do you want to go back to some questions?
0: Uh, yeah, we started off. About I feel
1: like now you're the one who wants to get this over with. <laughs> <laughs> no, I,
0: I'm a bit of a time Nazi. I like yeah. to end on time. Uh, so, tell me what is uniquely rewarding about your job?
1: Uh, working with people. Yeah.
0: That doesn't stretch the time out Serving
1: much. people. <laughs> Yeah, working with people, serving people. It's also one of the greatest challenges.
0: So how can we pray for you and support you? I feel like
1: we're wrapping up. Yep. (laughs) Um, First of all, I want to finish well, but I'm not finished. I've been wrestling with that the last um, year, year and a half, about what's next for me, Uh, seriously wrestling with that. And I'm fairly convinced that at least for the next three to five years, what's next for me is Redemption Arcadia. I was thinking in terms of something else like seniors ministry or uh, some other thing where a younger person could come in here and really lead the church into its next chapter. But uh, I'd have to really unpack some prayers and some conversations with you. But I've been convinced that um, for whatever reason, God has me here at this time in this place Uh, for this specific purpose for at least a few more years, three three to five more years, at least, so.
0: Okay, since I have the time, I have another couple of questions. One you told me not to ask, so. Okay. uh, uh, My experience has been we have people of uh, many different political persuasions Mm -hmm. on on different issues, so I guess I'd appreciate your take on the extent to which you would urge the congregation to become involved in the political uh, system uh, regard, oh, I, regardless of whether or not you agree with their their statement on a, either a candidate or an issue,
1: I think I think everybody needs to be involved. But if you are involved in such a way that, it, that it's obvious that it's your false god, that that you got a problem, and way too many people are involved in a way that it's become their false god. Um, if you really think that um, Donald Trump is going to ruin your life, uh, you need to get a life. And if you really think if you really thought that Barack Obama was going to ruin your life, he didn't ruin it, did he? He, he, he? You know, he didn't do it. Neither did Bill Clinton, neither did George Bush. Maybe Nixon. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 the, the, the level to which people go on the political stuff is, is, um, indicates that it's our, it is our big... And essays have been written about this. It's our biggest false god in America today. Politics. Whether it's left or right, it doesn't matter. Politics is our biggest false god in America today. Politics is never going to save you. It's never going to fulfill you. It's never going to give you what you want. Never, 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 never. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be involved, you shouldn't vote, you shouldn't try, and you shouldn't serve. But if you think that this is actually going to um, bring us this utopia that you've got in your mind, it's just not going to happen. So... um, But, on the other hand, I think that, especially as we get into Exodus, we have to deal honestly with some of the parallels between the Egyptians and uh, our country right now. And this is going to be hard for people, because when I do something like this, they're going to think that I'm taking a political stand, and I'm not. I'm trying to get you to see who God is in the midst of this, okay? So here's an example of this, okay? Look at Pharaoh in Egypt. Think about Pharaoh. This this was a bad dude, right? He was a manipulator. He was a liar. He boasts of great things. He had a big mouth, okay? And he also aborted children, okay? Have you thought about it this way? In 2016, we had an election, not of two presidential candidates, but of two Pharaoh candidates. That's what we had. We had one pharaoh candidate who's got a big mouth, boastful, manipulative, plays fast and easy with the truth, and we had another pharaoh who likes to put babies into baskets and send them down the river. You see that? We have a problem that can't be solved by Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. They are part of the problem. Only Christ can solve this problem. But I I feel like I have to point things out like that in order to point us to the answer so that we quit resting in Donald Trump or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or whoever it is going to be on the left side uh, in 2020. It's important for you to vote, but it's not going to change your life.
0: So let me take on one of the other tension spots that, that I sometimes see, and that seems to be uh, people who advocate that there should be more of an emphasis on social justice uh, rather than theology. I, that's the tension point I see. Why do you spend yeah. so much time talking about theology and what the Bible says and means and parsing sentences and looking at the Old Testament when we've got critical problems? in in the world in terms of uh, social structure and poverty and dispossessed refugees. Why aren't you just all over that?
1: Um, This this is not a new issue or a new problem, but the young um, people that are really interested in social justice really believe that it is new and that they're the ones who have thought it up. Read your church history. This has been going on for centuries, and the last time it was as intense as it is now was in the early 20th century with people like... um, Walter Roschenbosch and uh, Washington Gladden. Uh, they were known as the great social gospelers of the early 20th century. Uh, using the same kind of language that, that the uh, social justice warriors are using today, using the same philosophy, using the same arguments about all the same things. This is nothing new. Um, I'm not denying that we need to be about justice. God is about justice. Um, the problem is is that it's become an idol and a false god for some people. They're not as interested in Christ as they are in their cause, and that's a problem. You have usurped Christ with your cause. Um, have your cause. Go and serve. Do what God is calling you to do. But because God has called you to it doesn't mean that God has called everybody to it. We are a body, and he calls everybody to different things. You need to remember that. That's Larry Osborne in his book, A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. He says, you need to understand, your passion is not my passion, nor does it have to be. I have my own passions that God has given me. So respect my passions, and I'll respect your passions. That's 1 Corinthians 12. That's part of, of being a body. There's also been several essays written recently that are floating around the internet uh, by, by authors who have, who have re-described the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is that you and I are separated from God by our sin, and there's nothing that you and I can do to be redeemed, restored, and reconciled. But God sent his son as the perfect sacrifice, the final lamb, the last sacrifice. It is finished. To die on the cross for our sin, so that we so that he would do what none of us can do. That is be reconciled to God, restored, recreated, and redeemed only Jesus can do that and that is the good news that is the gospel there are these essays out there now that have redefined the gospel the gospel this way the gospel is social justice the gospel is you going out and and uh, fixing the border you going out and and uh, and uh, by, by the way it's never about abortion for whatever reason I don't know why that is but it's never about abortion and that's a problem okay but it's it's about It's about um, uh, the the corporations and their greed. Whatever it is, that's what the gospel is about. That's not the gospel. I've had conversations with people in our church, and they say, the gospel is social justice. And I said, no, it's not. The gospel will lead to justice in many contexts and should lead to justice in many contexts. But the gospel is not social justice by the way the word justice doesn't need a modifier it's just justice no matter what its justice it's either just or it's unjust okay but the gospel can lead to justice in many contexts but it isn't just about justice it's about mercy and grace it wasn't just that God came and died for us it was merciful and graceful that God came and died for us that's what the gospel is so I'm not against justice and I'm not against all the social movements I'm just very, very careful to jump in. The minute one happens, I want to see what it's really about, what the motivation is. Is it an idol? Is it, is it ethical? Because some of these movements aren't even ethical. You've got to be careful with that. Um, and is it gospel-centered? And then maybe we can have a conversation about it. But I'm telling you, the idea of walking in and going, what are you doing about this? And it was just in the newspaper yesterday. You know. Well, we need some time to explore it. You know. Maybe we'll do something about it and maybe we won't. But I'm gonna proclaim Jesus this morning. Is that okay with you?
0: <clears throat> Are you done being on a roll?
1: Was I on a roll? Did, yes. Was that a stream of, was that a problem, Jackie? <laughs> oh uh, privately is that gonna be a problem?
0: <laughs> no, so uh I don't want to take you off the roll. Is there okay. is there anything more you would like to add? Would you like to ask yourself a question? Would no, you, do would, you have
1: other questions?
0: Uh None that I want to follow up that answer with.
1: That's was a that great. Too no. much for you? <laughs> no, no. It was a great
0: answer. I, yeah, I okay. want to end. On you see it.
1: how worried I am about whether yeah. or not you're okay with. Yeah. Why well, are you okay? Yeah, it's a thorn in my. You are a thorn in my flesh.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Why do you worry about what I think? Nobody else does. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember no,
1: that. No. Though.
0: So, yeah, so the question is: Is there anything you'd like to, to sort of say? Is there something we didn't ask you that, that you'd like to talk about?
1: I, I don't know. I, I hadn't thought about it. Okay. No. And I know that's a question that I ask other people.
0: Yeah, no, it is. No, and, yeah. and there doesn't have to be anything else.
1: Um, I really love being here. I, I will say that. I think it's, I, I love, by the way, I love, love redemption. It's just some amazing people. Tyler Johnson's a special leader. Um, and all of our pastors are really, really good. And by the way, you're going to get to meet some of them uh, over the next. Uh, several months. Um, Sean Myers is going to be here this Sunday. Uh, I think this is good that you know what's going on. Wayne Winter, who is the one of the lead, uh, Alhambra has t- two co-lead pastors. Uh, they're like co-popes, and that's always worked well. Anyway, um, but uh, Wayne Winter is going to be here uh, next month uh, from Alhambra. You'll get to hear Wayne, uh, and Ricardo Stewart from Tempe is going to be here during Advent. He's going to be here, the se- I think, the second Advent week, and if you've never heard Ricardo Stewart preach, oh my goodness. How many of you know Ricardo? So let me tell you something about Ricardo. Um, of all, And I love all the pastors, but of all the pastors at Redemption uh, Church, Ricardo is the guy that I go to to try to understand uh, more about how to preach to people's hearts. Because he does it better than anybody. I, I think that, I think I'm if I may be so bold as to say this, I'm a very good academic preacher. I do my research, I read my books, I do my word studies, and and so I can appeal to the cognitive uh, aspect of anybody in the room if that's your deal, okay? So that that casts a wide net. I'm I'm pretty good at being able to cast a, a fairly wide net at at least maybe sort of skipping off or touching your heart as I go by. What I really struggle with is actually just penetrating the individual hearts of people in the congregation. I think that's where I could really stand to move forward, improve, and get better at it, and nobody does that better than Ricardo. Tom used to do it well, too, but Ricardo is so good at it. He just has that gift, that ability uh, to be able to do that, and so I spend a lot of time when I get an opportunity just talking to Ricardo about that. So he's coming in December, and I think you shouldn't miss him when he comes.
0: That's a great, great uh, advertisement for it. So can I close this in prayer? absolutely. So Heavenly Father, thank you uh, so very much for blessing us with with Pastor Frank. Uh, Just listening to him tonight reminds us of uh, how you have gifted him, how you've given him a passion for your word and ability to communicate and express it. Uh, a a desire to reach lost souls, to to counsel and disciple them, and and we're just so fortunate to have him here. So as as we leave tonight, uh, uh, we ask that your spirit will strengthen and guide us as the congregation to to continually pray for Frank, to pray that that he have an increased, an increasing love for Christ and his word and his people, that that he have a great relationship and a strengthening relationship with Jackie, that, that he maintain good health, that he can Serve and preach and uh, shepherd uh, all of us faithfully, and, and that we can provide the support and encouragement and wisdom that, that He would call us to provide as, as the body of Christ. And we ask all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Are we blessed to have prayed? Or why? Thank
1: Thanks, Steve. Let me say one more thing. Um, let me mention one other thing. In two weeks, two weeks from tonight, September 5th, um, we're going to have our next backstories, and we're going to interview Chuck Coughlin. How many of you know Chuck? Okay. Uh, this is interesting, piggybacking on one of your last questions. Uh, Chuck moved here 35 years ago um, because John McCain asked him to move here uh, to work on his first political campaign in Arizona, and Chuck is a political consultant, and understand, he is a Christian as a political consultant in today's political world. This should be a really interesting backstory. You don't want to miss that. So that's in two weeks on September 5th at 6.30 here, okay?